welcome to the Navit Gaming Podcast, where it is our mission to explore the business and future of video games. We bring together the industry's brightest builders, investors, and thinkers to keep a pulse on current events, dissect emerging trends and games, share lessons learned, and have a great time. This podcast is also part of Novik's growing ecosystem, which ranges from free and premium research to consulting and advisory services. For more information, visit www.novik.co. Now, let's jump into the episode. Hello, and welcome to the Novik Gaming Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Ovori. Today, we are going to shine a spotlight on a Web3 gaming studio that is one of the best capitalized and arguably best set up for success out there and that is Azra Games. They are led by gaming veterans from the world of Web 2 and have a ton of experience building in their chosen genre, which is RPGs. I wanted to understand why they see RPGs as a good fit for Web 3, how Azra is incorporating NFTs and Web 3 elements into their game design, and how they see the current Web 3 gaming environment evolving. Uh, Azra is currently working on its first title called Legions and Legends, and they have raised $25 million to do so, which is not bad for a seed round. Uh, Andreessen Horowitz led the financing, and the company is led by longtime RPG veteran and creator of one of the top grossing RPGs of all time, Mark Otero. Mark is one of those game designers who knows his strengths. He is an RPG guy through and through, having co-founded a studio that was acquired by EA back in 2011, uh, then developing Star Wars Galaxy of Heroes while at EA's Capital Game Studio out of Sacramento. And Galaxy of Heroes, of course, has grossed more than $1 billion in lifetime revenues. So Mark knows what he's doing with RPGs. Uh, Mark, welcome to the pod. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Awesome. All right. Well, with the intro out of the way, uh, let's get into the questions. And with guests such as yourself with with deep backgrounds in a particular genre of games and you know, having done the startup thing and the big company thing, um, I always like to hear and our listeners like to hear the journey. Uh, so what is the journey that you've been on uh, you know, as a founder and as an EA guy and now founding a Web3 studio with Azure Games. Tell our listeners more about who you are and what journey you're, you're on. You know, um, I was not initially a huge supporter of Web3. Um, in fact, in 2021, um, I kept hearing about it. My neighbors kept talking about it. And um, I was having barbecue with my neighbor. And uh, he told me how well his friends were doing. And, uh, you know, so I bought some coins, the usual basket of, of coins sometime around May or June of 2021. And I think the market was going through a correction at the time. And so I was also developing some AI tools uh, just on my own free time. And I decided to point some of these tools to learn um, more about the, uh, the crypto market. So but around November, December timeframe, um, it dawned on me that, you know, players can own these virtual goods in a way that um, they haven't able to before. And so when I made that connection around December timeframe, I was like, Oh, this is a, a new opportunity to, to do something interesting with virtual goods, which I haven't seen before. Um, this is fun again. This is like a new challenge. And so I decided to return to gaming, um, after a, a brief retirement from gaming. And it was a new challenge to make a new type of RPG game. That was Web3 sensitive. And you've always got a long history um, making hit RPGs. I'd actually love for you to talk a little bit about this is not your first RPG. You're not your first yeah. rodeo. <laughs> uh, I think I read somewhere you're on like number five or six or seven or eight. Um, maybe you've even lost count. So I'm curious to hear, what are you trying to do differently now with Azra Games? Um, as it relates to RPGs, obviously, we've got the digital ownership component, which you just alluded to in your in your introduction. Um, what are you doing incorporating Web3 elements into your game design with Legions of Legends and specifically as it relates to RPGs? Okay. A bit of background about myself, which may explain my obsession and fetish with RPG games, is, um, you know, I grew up in South Korea. And in the 80s, at I would say probably the golden age or at the beginning of the golden age of tabletop RPG games, um, I became just absolutely seduced. Um, by a number of tabletop games, including me eventually MechWarrior. And I got into a lot of trouble in, in um, elementary school, middle school, and high school because I would bring the books with me to read and play. And so that kind of set the foundation for, you know, what inspired me to create stories. And so I would go on to, to co-found a RPG games company. We published and we designed, so I designed and produced RPG games 
those ended up becoming um, these hit games. I uh, felt very fortunate for that. And then just kept learning new things about the RPG genre and just kept pushing myself. And so I've only done RPG games and I've done eight of them in a row. And I know that's pretty sick. <laughs> but it's, and the reason for that ultimately is, in addition to being inspired at a young age, when you, when you think about games, we ultimately make them for human beings. And I'm fascinated by the fantasies and aspirations of humans. And here's why. What I've learned is that RPG games, they're really interfaces to self-actualizing your deepest desires and fantasies. And, you know, as, as humans, we manifest these fantasies through activities. For example, you know, people move up the corporate hierarchy, you know, to make more money um, and, to, and to build wealth or they pursue other activities to build wealth. Um, there are other people who pursue activities where they're in positions of power. Um, and others, you know, they pursue activities of love and romance. And, and the reason why I share that with you is because each one of these can be self-actualizing activities. And the moment I realized that, I created something called the philosophy of fun. And this is something that I'll eventually write a book on. And, and it really speaks to human desires. And, and the more that you understand human desires, the more that you can realize that with RPG games, they are, in my opinion, one of the purest forms, the, the lowest friction interfaces for self-actualizing your needs. So if you envision Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you know, the top most point of, of the triangle is self-actualization. And this is why, you know, when you look at for mobile games, which was my eighth game, Star Wars Galaxy of Heroes, you know, when you take a look at RPG games, they're not the largest category of games. They're certainly one of the larger ones. You know, they make up anywhere from 14 to 17% of the installs, but they make up over 40% of the total gross revenue. And, and, and why is that? And there's a variety of ways you can interpret it. And the way I interpret it is it's a strong proxy for, for supporting my hypothesis that RPG games fulfill uh, self-actualizing fantasies. And so ultimately, because that's what I'm most obsessed about, understanding the humans that play these games and want to fantasize and aspire, um, this, is, this is why I focus on one genre, which is RPG games. Yeah, and that makes so much sense. You know, once you kind of develop that, that philosophy that you're developing and then, of course, get the practice, right? You know, game making is all about getting better with, with doing, right? Um, that makes total sense. Um, the follow-on question really from there is, so I get why RPGs, you're obviously obsessed with the genre and the self-actualization piece, but why do you think RPGs are a good fit for Web3? Um, the big reason, the main reason I wanted to have you on this, on this pod is specifically to kind of understand that question. Uh, because there aren't that many RPGs being developed uh, in Web3, and certainly there are none that are as well-funded uh, or as experienced as you guys are uh, in this genre. So I really want to hear, and our listeners I know want to hear, um, why Web3 for RPGs? What is the, the, the extra element that Web3 brings to this genre of games? So I'm going to answer your question with um, sharing a quick story, a journey. And then I'm going to introduce some concepts that I've developed to, to, to help me on this journey. And so when I first decided to come back to gaming in Q1 of 2021, I called up my friends. And we're now almost 50 folks here in Sac, mostly here in Sacramento. And over 50% of the studio, uh, well, roughly 50% is, is made up um, of, of former colleagues of mine that came from my previous studio. So we're located one mile from the studio I co-founded. And that's worked out quite well for us. And so 40% of the team um, at Azra Games is they worked on the previous game <laughs> with me. And so, and some colleagues, we worked on eight games together. And so this was a journey. So when we went into the space, I started asking questions. Um, and, and, and we created a 100-page a, a research document on the space in a span of about three to four months to understand what is the aspiration within Web3? That was the first question I have to ask. So using the philosophy of fun, I asked, what is the, what is the interface? What are people interfacing to? And what I quickly learned after a few months is that when you take a look at Web3, 
and this is something that I've spoken at GDC and GameSpeed recently, is historically there were there were two player types or two player classes within the game space. You have the players and the developers. Um, and that was a very mature and stable relationship. Then a new character class came, and, and this character class was different than the other two. Uh, and they were wealth seeking. Um, and the activities that they participate in are largely through speculation. And so first I had to identify the fantasy, then the player classes within the space. That's one. The next thing I had to understand is what I coined and created called the time value paradox. And this is a very important concept, especially given that with NFTs um, and with tokens, you know, they can be freely exchanged across a variety of, 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 of platforms or even one-to-one. And so the time value paradox is what I call the race to zero. And it goes like this. I'll, I'll start with an example. So let's say that you make $1,000 an hour and I make $1 an hour for whatever reason. You play our ninth RPG for 10 hours. I play our ninth RPG for 10 hours. You receive the Emerald Sword of Doom. I receive the Emerald Sword of Doom. You decide to list your sword for 25 cents in the market because it's an NFT. I see that. Oh, sorry. I decide to list it in NFT because I'm making a buck an hour for 25 cents. You see it and go, huh, that's interesting. Now, as someone making $1,000 an hour, you're probably a very logical person. So you're going to say, your time has just been valued to 25 cents. And you actually may be delighted by that, or you may rage quit. (laughs) Say you're delighted by it. And you go, oh, great. And then you find that I am now listing other items because I I got my friends, I got my family, I got my grandmother, I got my grandfather, because they have surplus time. And they begin to devalue their own labor. It's now 20, 15 cents. You're here, delighted, you continue to buy. Well, there's a problem with that is that the game becomes no longer fun or challenging or interesting. It's the same reason why I don't play tic-tac-toe anymore. I've already mastered it. Because your time has been devalued to the pennies, what I call the race to zero, you're now going to find yourself not enjoying the game. And so I had to create a number of frameworks with the team to understand what are the challenges, but we also had to accept, you know, what are the realities of this space? And so the realities are with the time value paradox, we had to solve that. The next thing we had to solve was what I call the dual funnel system. And the dual funnel system goes something like this. So Web3 crypto natives, not all, but many, are speculators, and their philosophy of fun is to pursue wealth. It's not all that different than people who trade stocks for a living. Their game is to pursue wealth. That's actually a game for them. So once you understand that that's a game, you want to respect that. Now, let's put that in a box. The other side of players, traditional players, play games for intrinsically rewarding and motivating reasons, right? So when people say fun, um, they're usually pursuing some activity. They're playing a mastery game. Uh, they're feeling really smart and they're achieving mastery, solving these really wickedly difficult puzzles as you progress. For RPG game players, if they're pursuing, let's say, a wealth, I mean, a power fantasy where you collect more powerful gear, more powerful weapons, what's happening mathematically is they're graduating um, mathematically increases the amount of power. And so even though they may not express that's what fun is, that is what fun is for those players. And so these are intrinsically rewarding and motivating games. So let's put that in another box. And so here what you have are two boxes, two different aspirations that you have to solve. The, the natural thing to do is to want to commingle them and to bring them together. Uh, but it's my opinion, if you do that, you will destroy your game. You will destroy your game because the wealth fantasy is actually much stronger. And so the game will eventually just play to that and become that game. And you will have, in my opinion, a very small 
dedicated audience, and it's uncertain if it's sustainable. And so that's a very difficult problem to solve. And so the way we've approached it and the way we say that we are a web-sensitive um, RPG game is first and foremost, you have to develop a fun game. And so if you, if you want to develop a fun game, you, you know, <laughs> developing a fun game is really hard. I only make one type of game and every game is, is, is hard work because you're looking to innovate. You're looking to push. And so I believe for, for web three games to be, um, to have a much larger audience and for it to sustain over many, many years, it must be intrinsically rewarding and motivating because then you can sustain it. And so the first thing you have to do, in my opinion, at least that's the way we're approaching it, you have to develop a fun game. Now, people say, of course you have to do that. Well, hold on. You know, we have 24 hours in a day. We all do. Why am I bringing that up? I'm bringing that up because everyone's 24 hours is already filled up with activities and habits. They already have a rhythm of life. They have HBO, they have Netflix, maybe let's say they're playing Star Wars Galaxy of Heroes. And so <clears throat> you have to develop a game so good and compelling that you're going to replace one of those slots in the human programming schedule. And so that's the first thing that we have to do. Once you've achieved that, it is our opinion that you can then begin thinking about Web3. This is why we say we're Web3 sensitive and that the Web3 elements, at least for our, our first game, it, it doesn't have the activities don't happen within the game. They happen around the game. And so that's how we're approaching bifurcating the aspirations of these two player types, the RPG players who find games fun, entertaining in the traditional way, and it's free to play. And then you have the Web3 crypto natives who are playing the wealth game around the game, not in the game. And so I believe with this approach, the fun game itself becomes the engine that drives activities within and around the game to make it sustainable. That's our approach. That, that's something that, um, that we designed in July of last year. So we've had this for a while now. And this was after many, many months of, 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 of study, um, of debate. Um, and so once we landed on that, we felt very comfortable with our approach. And we were not easily seduced by all the noise that was happening around us. So I don't know if you remember this, but last year, the meta was, you must have land, <laughs> right? Oh, yeah. The meta you keeps changing. <laughs> every every we, month or so, there's a new meta. Uh, yes, of course, uh, the land craze. Uh, nobody talks about land anymore. Funny that, right? No. We knew, I knew even I knew early on in March, the meta was going to be short-lived. Um, how did I suspect that? Well, if you're anyone who's built a game before will know that building a game in itself is, 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 is like creating a miracle, okay? Now you add a second game called the land game. And you're now building two games in one. So you're now having to do two miracles. And so the moment I saw that, I was like, huh, if you're going to do a land game, you've got to focus on just being a land game company. If you're going to focus on a non-land game, then that's what you should probably focus on. Because doing both, you're going to have to have multiple teams with a shared vision to somehow bring that all together, which is extraordinarily difficult. And I personally wouldn't know how to do that. And so it was really quick for us to say, hey, we're not doing this you know, land, uh, <clears throat> land meta. It doesn't make sense. I don't think people realize how difficult it is to just make one game, let alone add land meta on top of that. And so we avoided all that stuff. And it's the same reason why we didn't have any in-game assets that we pre-sold, including a token. And the reason for that is we didn't have these frameworks designed yet. And we didn't have 100% idea of the game that we're building. So how can we even design or sell assets to people with the expectation that we know exactly what game we're building? Because the moment you begin to sell these assets, you've already established an expectation for the community and 
You've designed a design expectation of your game. That you are now beholden to, that may not be the best decision for the game you end up with. And so you compromise. So we avoided all that stuff, all of it. Um, I'd like to think that it's because we're more disciplined, but I think a big part of it is because we had enough doubt to realize we just didn't know enough. So there's a lot to unpack there. So thank you for that. And um, I'm, I, I've scribbled furiously notes down here <laughs> into areas I want to <laughs> dig into. But the very first thing I want to dig into um, uh, that really struck me, um, you said you're Web3 sensitive. Um, and then you mentioned, you said a phrase that I wrote down here, which is uh, the Web3 stuff does not happen in the game. It happens outside the game. Uh, so I want to, I, I think you alluded to this a little bit already, which is that's the wealth, um, the the wealth, you know, that's the whole dual paradox. I have so many things you you said that I wrote down here. Some of them are going to get jumbled together, but the wealth seekers, that's what you said. The wealth seekers. Um, tell me, tell me more about how you are thinking about that part of the game. Cause that, you know, you're exactly right. That is a game. And that is mostly what web three right now is at least the degen part of web three. It's chasing a buck, chasing the next coin, chasing the next pump, you know, and then the dump and what have you. And you know, a lot of what has happened in play to earn up until this point land meta, speculation, et cetera, has mm -hmm. been that wealth-seeking part. And it's real. It's legit, to your point. It's a, it's a real thing. It's very powerful because if you're making money, well, you're making money, and that is a huge motivation for almost everyone, at least to some degree. Um, so tell me more about this phrase, not in the game, outside the game. How are you thinking about that uh, aspect of the game? Because you just said something that's very true to me, which is trying to build two different games at the same time is virtually impossible. Like focus on one, nail that. And you know, you're saying, hey, we've done eight RPGs already, and you're still like full of doubt about whether you can build a game. And I'm the same. I'm a game developer myself. So there's always doubt around whether you can actually pull it off. Um, and adding all these extra elements makes it that much harder. But to me, it sounded at least a little bit like you are actually thinking about this, you know, not in the game, outside the game type of extra game <laughs> that that is a part and parcel of the Web3 sensitive part. Um, so I know that's a long question, but it was a very, um, what you said spoke to me quite deeply. Uh, and I really want to unpack this notion, an extra layer, peeling the onion. Tell me more about this, not in the game, outside the game piece. Yeah, <clears throat> so I have to be careful about this because we want to be one of the first to introduce this. Um, uh, this. So we've introduced the concept um, and the idea of how one could approach this, not saying this is the only way. And so, <clears throat> you know, going to back to your point about having doubt, you know, I think it's very important for every developer to have doubt. You know, it's the same way that if you did sports, which I did sports in high school, you have performance anxiety. And when you have performance anxiety, you heighten all your senses, um, including the brain. And so with these heightened senses, uh, we began asking really tough questions. Now, I'm going to answer your question. And so here's what I mean. So let's start this in sequence. Uh, step one, build a great game that's going to change people's behavior because you've created a stronger interface for people to self-actualize their fantasies. That's step one. And that's really hard, okay? Really hard. So let's assume that we pull that off. The next question you have to ask yourself is Web3. There are currently a number of hurdles in gymnastics that you have to overcome to really be productive in Web3, right? You have to sometimes have to have the right token to be able to even pay the gas fees. Then you have to have a wallet with the key phrase that I write down in my notepad, <laughs> which, I, which is probably not very secure. Um, and so you got to do all these gnarly things just to get to Web3. The problem is, is that the mainstream folks and most, I would say most people outside of Web3, they're not going to do any of that stuff, all that nonsense. And so within our game, you have to develop firstly a great freaking game. Then there's the, the players within the game itself who, who, who love your game enough to, who, who are then ready to perhaps overcome these challenges. Those players, you, you know, within the games industry, you know, you, you know, those haven't worked at Zynga. You can call them veteran and elder gameplay, right? And elder gameplay is even the most ferocious players. 
These players, as you know, and I know, they will have the, the endurance and the interest to overcome Web3, assuming the benefits are strong enough for them to give them an edge within their game, whatever the game is. You and I both know that's true. And so that's when players realize that our world is Web3 sensitive. It's only at that time. And so I'm going to stop there and, um, and say, that's when we plan to introduce what we call the token of fun. And the token of fun is, 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 um, is a token that h- helps facilitate more activities within the game itself for a certain set of players. And so the token pricing as a utility, as a utility, uh, literally becomes mathematically the way it works out is a proxy to fun. <laughs> that's the way it works out mathematically. And so that's the game um, for the step one. Step two, the crypto natives, upon hearing about this token of fun, their alpha, you know, that's what the term they use, um, they will come to realize that the token of fun is one of the purest mathematical approximations of fun, which is what everyone's been looking for. And what did they do? Well, they acquire the tokens. They hold it, they speculate. And notice I said nothing about the game. It's their game. So they're now playing their game. So that's the game around the game. And so the game, the the RPG game itself is the engine that sustains the activities within and around the game by being a utility of fun. And so this is this is something that I that I created. While I was watering my garden, and this was—I don't know how many iterations of, of 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 economies we went through, and it finally dawned on me that I wasn't solving the puzzle correctly. I had to solve it in sequence, and in solving it in sequence, I then had to solve when you introduce and to whom. And so, once I came together, <clears throat> I met with our CTO Travis Bardot. I always screw up his last name. He's a French guy. And sorry, Travis, if you're listening to this, I just massacred your last name. Um, And so he and I sat in a room uh, for hours and uh, we architected this out. And we looked at each other and we said, I think we solved it. And we smiled. That's a bold claim, Mark. I, I like I like bold <laughs> claims on this show. So uh, tell me, tell me. I, I'm fascinated by this um, this uh, this token here. So I, I, I firstly, hundred percent respect for you saying it's not fashionable at the moment to actually say, "Hey, I'm a game developer. I'm coming from Web two. I'm incorporating Web three elements." And by the way, it is for the speculators. Love that, and that's actually respect and kudos to you. That is a hugely powerful motivator, and it's a little unfashionable at the moment to lean into that. Because it seemed kind of like, hey, you know, we saw what happened to Play to Earn. It didn't work out so great. A lot of those were yep. Ponzi's. But yep. kudos to you for saying, hey, no, actually, that is a powerful motivator. And it is right for us to, to introduce a token. And that token is not for the gamers. It's for the speculators. So number one, respect. Um, number two, back to the bold claim, how did you calculate this mathematical formula? You are, you are saying you think you've cracked it. Uh, I want to hear how you are actually going to equate fun with an actual price that will fluctuate um, in a way that the DGENs can, res- you know, like respect and see how it's working. Uh, so, tell me more. This is this is a this is going to be a fun episode. <laughs> uh, I love this. Claim. Well, <laughs> I see why you raised twenty five million from Andreessen Horowitz now. Um, uh, so yeah, please uh, t- t- tell tell us uh, more about how you're going to actually equate fun with a price. Sure. I have to be very careful because we shared this invention uh, with, <laughs> so I'll tell you a funny story. Um, and it wasn't so fun for me. And so in, in December, you know, when all hell, all, you know, all hell was breaking loose, at least within crypto land, um, you know, there was a lot of fear everywhere. And uh, we decided to, hey, you know, even though we raised 15 million in May, um, we thought it was a good idea to raise another 10, a safety round, just in case, because it's hard to predict what's going to happen in the future. And so before we decided to do that, I was, I was asked to provide an update to, um, 
Andreessen Horowitz. I won't go into too much details, but they asked me to provide an update. And I thought it was going to be three or four people that were going to show up. Um, and over 26 people from Andreessen showed up, including Ben Horowitz, Chris Dixon, Ariana Simpson, and all the, <laughs> and all the, uh, all the great folks there. And so, but here's the worst part. I was late. And so there was a car accident that happened in front of me. I know it sounds like the dog ate my homework, but this was the first time I was late to an update. And I was 15 minutes late. And so while my team was basically just filling up the time, probably annoying 90% of the Andreessen folks, I was going up the elevator with my phone and Zoom, <laughs> not knowing that there were now over 30 people waiting. And um, in that update, I provided a, um, a master class in how to assemble an RPG game into its components, all the components, when, how, what, why, right? Bringing it all together. And then introduce this concept that I'm that I've shared with you. Um, it's possibly, and I'm speculating here, that it's highly likely this is the first time they've ever seen anything like that. And I went into more detail. Um, and then a you know, and then a short time thereafter, um, not saying that that was the reason, but I suspect this was part of the reason why um, you know they decided to lead the seed extension themselves. And so. I share that with you is because I can only answer so much because um, while I do believe this is a, a real key innovation uh, for how to think about introducing a token, uh, I'm going to disappoint you in that I'm not going to answer all your questions. <laughs> oh, you're teasing our listeners, Mark. You're teasing our listeners. Uh, I know for a fact that this is the one thing that they're going to be latching onto because I know I am. And uh, this yeah. is uh, super uh, fascinating. Okay. I will respect your your desire to keep some things trade secrets. Um, let me let me change course a little bit. Um, uh, it, it's, it's related. Uh, I, I know sure. you've launched uh, an NFT collection already um, for uh, Legions of Legends. Uh, it was what you're calling a Play Forever Pass, PFP having a little fun with, with that uh, acronym there. Uh, I believe it was a free mint on Ethereum. You can correct me on if I'm wrong on any of the details here. Uh, and what the holders get is early and exclusive access to community on Discord um, and then uh, alpha and beta gameplay. Um, mm -hmm. So tell me a little bit about, because this is actually out there, this is Web3, um, it's an NFT, it can be traded. Uh, tell our listeners more about how you thought about this first collection, uh, and then how has it performed compared to your expectations? And if you have plans for additional collections, uh, and if they would have different utility or the same kind of utility. Yeah, so, you know, <clears throat> the NFT PFP collection is called The Hopeful. And, you know, that was a name that I, that I decided to come up with. Um, is, you know, I challenged the team on what is it that the Web3 space needs at the moment? And one of the things uh, that came out to my mind was the idea of hope. You know, I think there was just a lot of faith and hope into the promise of Web3. So that's why we called it the hopeful. <laughs> it was out of great respect for all the pioneers um, within this space. And we decided to uh, make this a gift for the community as a play forever pass for our game. So they get early sneak peeks. Um, perhaps to get a sweatshirt and some other things. And this is really, once again, uh, it was a free mint. Um, there was, we had no to zero profit motive for this. And um, we decided to keep it outside the game uh, for the same reason that I shared earlier in that our game has evolved. And we wanted the freedom to evolve the game um, to the place that it needed to go. And so you know how that goes with game development. You have an idea, you have a certain set of specs, um, and then the game changes dramatically midway through. <laughs> then it changes sometimes, perhaps not as dramatically, when you have the whole thing put together. Um, and, so, and then it changes again when you start getting data. And so you know this, I know this. And so you know, we decided to take a different approach um, with our NFTs because I didn't agree with what I was seeing that some other developers were doing. You know, they would make all these incredibly bold claims and, you know, millions of dollars would go into these NFTs for a team who've never built a game before. 
They're going to build the next greatest, whatever it is, next greatest Pokemon on Web3. It's going to be so wonderful. And then they release these, these, these NFTs and they look kind of ridiculous. And it becomes very clear um, they haven't fully come around to understanding the, the responsibility of what they said. And it's because they just didn't know. And so we wanted to take a completely different way where we honored our own ignorance at the same time honoring and giving something free to our community. And so, you know, the first generation of Web3 games, I am very grateful for them. Uh, I mean, look, I'm, this is one of the reasons why I'm here. And so I'm very, very grateful to them. And so we're entering what I call a new season where things are more sober. And the fact that people are perhaps talking less about Web3 games, I see that as a positive because our position has survived the changing meta. And that tells me we're right on target, that the decisions that we made, the time that we put in and the respect that we have is now paying off. And so we're able to more perhaps under the radar and acquire the market to build the game um, that, that we all want to play. And so none of this that's going around us, it doesn't impact us at all. I don't even think about it anymore at all. And so we're, we're heads down, we're building the game and we continue to, and we're going to lean on our NFT community because later at the end of this year, we're going to invite them to play our game or at least a, a slice of our game since we're going to release the game in slices. And so we have three major milestones this year, internal. And the third milestone, if you're an NFT holder, uh, the hopeful holder, you have an early sneak peek and the opportunity to provide us really strong critique and feedback. How does this game feel? Is this what you think? Is this feel great? Is it awe-inspiring? Um, and so I played the latest build of the game. I, it's, it is badass. <laughs> I think players are going to be quite happy with what we're building. I'm very, very proud of our team um, in terms of the progress that we've made. Um, and so, you know, I don't know if I answered your question. I'm just rambling now. <laughs> no, no, no. You, 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 um, you definitely answered the question there as to what this NFT collection does. Um, I have a follow-on on that. So you're saying, you know, the holders of uh, the hopeful, this NFT collection, will get a chance to see an early build, play an early build, and give you strong feedback. That's great. Um, I think one of the challenges with this approach, so one, it's a very good approach in theory because it aligns people who are really interested in something early on with you know ownership, actual ownership of this, these tokens, and then gives them an opportunity to give you that exclusive feedback. On the flip side, it runs into the same challenge that you're going to lean into with your token of fun, which is there are speculators out there. They're not actually gamers. They are mm -hmm. Web3 degens. They have wallets. They're prepared to go on to uh, you know, exchanges and have their seed phrases and, you know, buy these NFTs. And I think a lot of the challenges many developers, ourselves included, have felt um, is there is a mismatch between who these holders are, even with the best intentions that you have, which is, hey, we want these people to feel a sense of ownership and to provide us feedback as gamers. Many of them are, are probably not gamers. Um, and so I'm curious to hear your thoughts on how do you, how do you, feel about that mismatch? Or do you even feel you have that mismatch between who the holders are of these NFTs and who your intended gamer audience is going to be eventually down the line? So can, I, I guess my question is, can you trust this feedback, even if they give you feedback? Like, do they know what they're talking about as gamers? Yeah, I, I understand the concern. Um, and <clears throat> I'm going to go back to, you know, most NFT game launches, they were in-game assets. And when it's an in-game asset, the first thing people are going to think about, because everyone is generally self-serving and selfish, going back to my everyone has 24 hours, what I really mean is that everyone is self-optimizing uh, to what, best, what is best for them. And so when these players purchase or these Web3 crypto natives purchase these NFT in-game assets, these are in-game assets. And I would say, it's pro that's probably for 99% of the Web3 games. 
if not more. Uh, and so, so let's go with this for a second. You get an early look at the game and you're holding an NFT that you spent anywhere from, I don't know, 600 to maybe several thousand for. And it probably dawns on you that the game sucks. <laughs> and you just paid 600 to several thousand for a game that you have now lost confidence in. How would you feel? Pretty bad. I probably wouldn't feel that great. Um, I, and I am, I'm a holder of many of these NFTs that are in-game yeah. assets that have gone from, you know, I, I never spent thousands on in-game assets because that's kind of crazy, honestly, in my, in my opinion. Um, but yeah, I've spent hundreds on several of them and they've all gone down to zero. So, um, so for sure, yeah. that's the risk with in-game assets. I, I buy that. Um, yeah, but I think so my 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 core question still stands though, which is you know you you made this a free mint, right? Kind of a, almost like a gift to the community. But you know yeah. that's the thing with free mints is well, there's no cost to me. I might as well grab one and let's see if it's worth something in the future. And again, sure. those folks might not be be players. Again, you have plenty of time to to make sure that these end because because they are owned and you can trade them. You have plenty of time for them to get into the right hands, so to speak. Um, but yep. yeah, I just want to hear a bit more about your thought process around, Hey, sure. like how reliable is this feedback going to be from these holders? No, that, that's a valid question. So that's, so the, first of all, before I go, before I, I don't know if you, before I answer questions, I have to contextualize things so that we're, so that we're having a strong conversation and I think a generally, uh, directionally accurate conversation. And so I bring up the in-game assets, NFTs, as an example, because the mindset is a bit different. The expectations are different. Most game developers made money from this to fund game development. And so that's, that's, we'll call that track A. Track B are those game developers that minted um, a, free, uh, a free path like we did, which was in the minority. Now, I'm under no illusion that most of these folks are here because they want to play a traditionally fun, entertaining game. I'm under no illusion for that. And so we surveyed our audience of, 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 of holders. And what we found, uh, assuming that it's generally 70% accurate, the survey, and assuming that people generally give you <laughs> directionally accurate answers, what we found is that about a quarter of the uh, NFT, PFP, the hopeful holders, are RPG players and they love RPG games in addition to telling us what RPG games they enjoy playing. So we've collected some telemetry and some data. With that data, we have managed the expectations of their feedback. And so we know many of these uh, PFP holders because we have a Discord channel and a community manager who engages them. And so for our first test, let me be very clear, it's a very, very, very small test. It'll be about three tests in sequence of about 10 to 20 people in each test. And we're going to filter them for, for RPG. And they will be commingled with folks that we pay who are RPG players. And so we're going to have both groups. And then we're going to A-B test both groups to see where there's variance or whether there's consistency to help mitigate the risk that you're, that, that you're calling out. And so we're prepared for this, I guess is what I'm saying. And I so love the thoughtfulness. Yeah. I love the thoughtfulness. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's a great answer. That's a great answer. And uh, I love the thoughtfulness around doing an A-B test as to whether you actually do have the right audience. Cause that's, that's definitely a concern that, that I feel, you know, with the web three natives versus uh, gamers who could probably care less about web three elements. They just want a great game to play. So you're preaching to the choir yeah. on, on that point, And that's something that i I believe for a long time too. Um, okay, I'm going to um, ask you about your your funding. Obviously, you raised uh, 25 million from Andreessen Horowitz mostly, but obviously other investors too. Uh, it's it's a big round. I think we all know that. Um, and with big rounds come big expectations, of course. Um, and you have the track record to back it up. Um, I'm curious to hear what your milestones are. You alluded to it to a couple already. You have three internal ones for this year. Um, but what are you expecting to hit with this 25 million in funding? Uh, what does success look like? Uh, 12, yeah. 18, 24 months out from here. Now, a PR team would probably caution me to answer answering some of this. <laughs> what I will say is this. Um, we have what, what's called five slices that are planned. And 
if you think of a pie, each slice is, is going to reveal more of the game. Uh, the, the reason why we're doing it like this, and then I'm going to answer your question, is because I am not satisfied with the way that we launch games historically, where you spend years building a game, and then you put it into soft launch. <laughs> it's kind of a coin toss, right? <laughs> You're kind of praying, please let the metrics, especially retention, work out. Uh, but if it doesn't, you're in big trouble. You're in big, big trouble. Because at that point in time, your game is already baked in. It is so difficult to try to make a game fun at that point, <laughs> if it's not fun enough. In other words, you're kind of screwed. And so for us, we have the sandbox test towards the end of the year. And then we have slices uh, over the next two years. And so... And each slice aims to solve and get answers to different parts of, of, of what fun means. Is it fun for engaging? Is the style of the game uh, appropriate for a Western audience? And that's what we're going for. The U.S., the European Union, uh, North America, Australia, New Zealand. And so, you know, we're looking to solve, you know, ask some questions. Is this a game that's attractive for the Western market? Are the controls of the game satisfying where you're fulfilling a, a power fantasy, you know, within minutes? Is it immediately engaging? And so each one of these slices will solve a different question. Uh, and between slice uh, about three and four, we'll then start to go with short-term and long-term, short-term and mid-term retention. And now to answer your question, yes, this is a big game. It has a very big vision. We have developed, uh, invested very heavily in the tools, especially AI, uh, for helping us reduce um, some of the content creation. For example, for our concepting, we've reduced the cost um, slightly over 50% now. Um, and so tr in, in, in these games, in these collectibles and combat RPG games, these are very character-heavy games. You generally have a concept team, you know, the size of about 10 to maybe 15 artists. We can now do that with two artists for concepting. And so that is a major breakthrough in production, utilizing AI to help us. Now, we're going to have to continue to innovate with AI to reduce the cost further. And so I, while we have enough funding to get to probably slice three or four, um, and so you know, we're, we're, we're obviously sometime in the future looking to obviously get to slice five and to release the game. And so, um, but we've been, what I can share is that we're, you know, we have been very fortunate with the support that we've had from Andreessen Horowitz, who was our lead in our C plus, um, in our seed and C plus. We've also, you know, had great support from NFX. And so on the Andreessen side, we have Ariana Simpson and Jonathan Lai. Uh, on the NFX side, we have Gigi Levy-Weiss. And so we have three very strong venture partners who believe in our vision, um, the size and scope of our game, and so um, have confidence that we'll, we'll definitely finish the game. And I believe you know, we'll have more than enough funding <laughs> to finish it. Long story short, yes, it's likely going to cost more than $25 million. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> fair, fair enough. Um, yes. I mean, yeah, big game, um, big funding round. Obviously, you need to have a big vision um, and, you know, you need to be shooting for, for, for the moon. So it sounds like you guys are and you have that big, big ambition to, to, to make it big. Um, talking about big, uh, you already uh, answered part of this question. Now, I was going to ask you how big is your team? You said about 50 people in Sacramento. A lot of them are folks that you've worked with, um, you know, for, for years on multiple titles. Um, uh, are you looking to grow the team from here or do you have what you need um, a, you know, in order to, to hit these next milestones? And then I have, a, I have a second question, which is I'm looking from the outside in. It looks like you're building an in-studio culture. Um, it looks like you have an office. Uh, I saw some photos yep. on Twitter where you guys were furnishing the office and you've had lots of in-person stuff going on. Um, that is it's not obviously not unique, but it's it's a it's a bit of a shift from what we've been seeing during the pandemic. A lot of studios going fully remote, embracing fully remote. Uh, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on choosing, presumably very deliberately, to go and build this in studio culture. So, first question first: fifty person team. Are you still looking to grow? And then second question: um, What do you think about in studio versus versus remote? 
So, you know, right now we're very, very cautious of growing above 50. Um, and so, you know, I've managed teams over 160, I've managed teams about 100, 138, and 190, and managed teams of 13. So I have, I'm in a fortunate position where I've seen different time, team sizes, and you have to understand the benefit of when to grow. So the question is, when do you grow the team? And so we're going to flatline the team around 50. Uh, so we're, we're very close there now. Um, and then as we get likely between slice two and three, that's when you grow the team to about 70. Now, I want to asterisk that real quick and say, that's on the big assumption. And it better work out because it has to work out. <laughs> These other AI tools that we're building uh, will continue to uh, perform in the same way that it's performed for the concepting art. We're going to bring more of the AI into the world building uh, and non-marquee characters like NPCs and stuff like that. Where you know we're going to have probably hundreds of NPCs. So instead of that taking a whole team to do that, uh, we're going to lean very heavily into AI to help us with these 3D uh, non-marquee models. And so about 50 now, and they'll probably get grow to about 70 something um, sometime around slice three of the game. Uh, that's when you're ready. That's when the game itself is on rails. You have enough feedback from the market and metrics to then uh, allocate additional spend directionally into a very specific direction. So you make the most of the resources at the right time. So, so that hopefully that answers that question. In terms of local versus remote, you know, I this is I this isn't my first zero to one studio. It's certainly not my first zero to one game. Um, I have managed multiple studios before. I have seen what happens when you do things remotely. I lack the imagination, the skills, and the creativity to know how to manage a completely remote team. And I do not know how people do that. And, and, and because I respect my shortcomings and limitations, <laughs> we are mostly local studio. And once again, we have the benefit in that, you know, about 50% of the studio came from my previous studio. And so we have that benefit. And so many other studios don't have that benefit. And so I, I I think it's so hard to manage people remotely. It is, and especially if you're, if you're building a new zero to one studio, my God, <laughs> to try to get that to work um, because you need friction. Building a game requires and demands friction and you accelerate that friction when you're together. When you're remote, you have to schedule friction. And so, in my opinion, um, and you should discount this, um, because you're scheduling for, for uh, friction, you're prolonging the cost of the game because you're prolonging time itself. And so, I believe that it's more expensive um, and a slower process overall. And, and so, I am not okay with that. Well, that's a great answer. Um, I, I, I like how contrarian you are to to a lot of uh, the other interviews that we've done on this show. You know, a lot of uh, studios are going fully remote or at least, you know, part, partly remote. Um, you know, it, it could be cheaper, I think, to do that. But you're saying in terms of time, because you need that friction, it actually ends up being more expensive and slower to, to get to market. So, no, I, I respect your views on that. Uh, and, uh, yeah. Uh, I think it makes makes a ton of sense, uh, especially for something creative like like game making. Um, we we only have a few minutes left here, and so I want to ask my my final question for you, which is kind of a broader uh, perspective on the market. Obviously, you've raised from a lot of top tier investors. You presumably have regular communications with them. Obviously, you you collectively have a great view on what's happening in gaming and Web three gaming in particular. Um, but we are still in the grips of a crypto winter. You alluded to this earlier in the interview, where you said, "Hey." A lot of the spotlight is off now. It's actually just a great time to build. Not a lot of the hype and all these metas that we're chasing, um, we don't have to worry about any of that stuff. But I want you to kind of expound on that a little bit sure. further. What do you see happening over the next you know, 12, 18, 24 months, uh, especially as it relates to Web3 gaming? Are we going to see more innovation, but uh, 
you know, fewer companies doing it, or are we going to see a lot more companies jumping in and then all chasing the same meta, which is kind of what we, we've been doing, chasing our tails a little bit as an industry um, up until this point? I believe that, first of all, um, the Web3 space has a shot at one or two potential hit games over the next two to three years. And I'm selfishly putting us in that category. Um, <clears throat> and so, but I, I, I want us to get out of the category for just a moment and and just talk about games. And it's, now it's going to answer your question because I'm going to share with you how I think about this. And so looking at you, you were obviously around 2010, 2011 playing mobile games. You remember that time, Frank? You're oh, saying sure. That. Free to play. Oh, yeah. So, Everybody hated free to play. It was like the, the devil's <laughs> word. Know. A I decade know. later, you know, we've got, yeah, I think I, I know where you're going to go with this, but yeah, please continue. So, Remember that time frame where, because that's where I was beginning to uh, move the studio into mobile, you know, like you having never done it before. Uh, there was a lot of uncertainty around that period of time. Uh, but one thing that was, there was a meta at the time. Um, and it wasn't uh, necessarily free to play, even though people, you know, have rewritten history. But there was a lot of questions even around the free to play model in 2010, 2011. Um, and so that's one. But, but two, there was a bigger meta. That was that everybody was talking about. And you're gonna you're you're gonna laugh when I say this, but it was the touch screen, and there was cut the rope, there was fruit yeah. ninja, and those at the time were top grossing games, and the top downloaded apps, and so everyone focused on building game mechanics around the touch screen technology, and now you see where I'm going with this. Guess what? Those games are no longer top grossing. That meta changed. Uh, to more engaging retaining games uh, that you and I both worked on. And so now let's use that as an analog to Web3. And so in Web3, everyone says NFTs, NFT game. In my opinion, that's the equivalent of a touchscreen. And so I share that because first and foremost, we're building an RPG game that's frictionless to enter. It's free to play. And when people play the game, they won't know it's a Web3 sensitive game. Who cares? Why should they? I don't want people thinking about that. Web3 will not be at the forefront of our game because if it is, you will not get mainstream. And so we have to remove all the friction. It's going to be a mobile and PC game. First and foremost, a free-to-play game. And it's going to be fun. And so I think as more Web3 developers don't think of the touchscreen moment for Web3, which is NFTs, in my opinion. Um, they need to focus on the basics of fun and getting the fun, because fun is mass market. And having the Web3 in the background, not the foreground of the player experience. At that point in time, I believe there will be one or two hit games in the next two to three years. And I think at that point in time, it's potentially possible Web3 will have another, they'll say, of course, this is it. You know, <laughs> Suddenly everyone's going to be smart again. <laughs> right. But right now we're kind of in the doldrums, you know, and I am completely okay with that. I'm very comfortable with that. Yeah, I, I, I share this thesis 100%. Um, that I think exactly the same way that, that you're just describing it, which is, you know, that we're still early. Um, and imagining that web three, the way it currently works with the wallets and all the friction is going to be the thing that is going to drive mass market adoption is, is madness in my mind, right? Like it's, it should be, it should be obvious even now, but it will definitely be obvious in retrospect that, yeah. you know, web three, the way we have experienced it up until this point is, is not the thing. Um, it'll just be a set of tools and technologies and, you know, things in the toolkit that we can use as developers to make the experience more fun, more differentiated, um, more interesting as a game, more fun as a game, ultimately. So uh, you you are definitely preaching to the choir there. Um, all right, well, this has been a fantastic episode. Uh, I've really enjoyed having you on here, Mark. Um, a lot of really great insights. Uh, I wish you'd answered a few more questions, some of the, uh, <laughs> the, the deeper questions. Um, sure. But maybe we can have you back on the pod when you're ready to share more, because I'm definitely interested in this, especially the... Uh, uh, the token of fun and what formula you've magicked up to equate fun with with a token price. Uh, very fascinated by that. Um, all right, well, that 
wraps it up. Mark, um, thank you again for coming on the pod. Uh, I really did enjoy hearing your vision for, for Azra um, and how you're being very thoughtful, I think, about incorporating Web3 elements into, not even into the game design, but around the game design. So I wish you the best of luck as you build out the, the game and uh, best of luck to the team. Great. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. And a big thank you, as always, to all of our listeners. We'll be back next week with more interviews, more insights, and more analysis from the weird and wonderful world of Web3. Until next time, friends, stay crypto curious and feel free to send questions, guest recommendations, and comments to me. My email is nico at novic.co. And you can always find me on Twitter at NicoTheFin. DMs are open. If you enjoyed today's episode, whether on YouTube or your favorite podcast app, make sure to like, subscribe, comment, or give a five-star review. And if you want to reach out or provide feedback, shoot us a note at podcast at novic.co or find us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Plus, if you want to learn more about what Novic has to offer, make sure to check out our website, www.novic.co. There, you can sign up for the number one games industry newsletter, Novic Digest, or contact us to learn about our wide-ranging consulting and advisory services. Again, that is www.novic.co. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you in the next episode.